The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the program today Ben Miller. He joins us on the telephone in Brooklyn. Hello, Ben. Uh, hello, Vic. It's an honor to be here. Recently, you were involved in editing a book by Dorothy James. Tell us about this project. Sure. I was, and, and again, hello to everyone from Brooklyn, uh, beautiful Brooklyn. And it's particularly suitable that I'm here because the subject of this project uh, that I edited um, is a person who was an Austrian in, in the early 20th century who was a composer, and he's actually buried just across the river in Staten Island, so almost within view of the apartment where I am uh, on the East River. So it's wonderful to be doing this in this particular place. But to get back to the origin of the project, I was at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study um, some years ago, and I met a, an, a German historian uh, there who was also in my cohort, and her name was Ermtrud Wojak, and she was particularly interested in lives of people who had shown courage uh, under extreme duress of tyranny. Uh, in other words, the people who weren't silent, but the people who found it in themselves to speak back and, and to try to address injustice. And I was attracted to this theme for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and we got to talking, and she, she exposed to me her idea of one day having a print library of accessible um, books that would be basically for anybody who's an adult reader, uh, that were books that were very, sh particularly not, not long, you know, 150, 200 pages, uh, that told the stories of individuals that had shown courage in the face of tyranny. And so we talked, and eventually I left Cambridge, and I moved to South Dakota, a great marriage of regions. And there I was writing, working a day job, as I've always done. I've never taught. And so we continued to, she went back to near Munich, and we continued to go back and forth and, and talk. And this library started to become real. And um, she said, do you know anybody who might have uh, be willing to write for us? And, of course, we were on a shoestring, and, uh, you know, that, that somewhat limits the, the array of people. But really that didn't matter because I knew the perfect person. And this was a, a woman who had run the German department at Hunter College for many years and had also done a lot of writing on the side, uh, nonfiction and fiction. And her name is Dorothy James. And I had known her, and, and I thought, well, I'll run the idea past her, and I'll say, do you know anybody – who fits this profile that you would love to write about? Uh, and she immediately came up with the name of this Austrian composer and uh, lyricist and novelist and poet, uh, Jura Seufer. And that's J-U-R-A-S-O-Y-F-E-R. And so from there, um, she started to develop material. She would send it to me. And we go back and forth uh, about the life of this incredibly uh, accomplished person who did not live long, uh, only from 1912 to 1939. But in that time, 
uh, produced texts that still are read and studied in Europe and, and really actually deserve to be known by a larger audience. And the result is the book by Dorothy James, Full of Hunger and Full of Bread, The World of Jura Seufer, 1912-1939. Exactly, yep. And so you were the editor on this project. Yes, I was the editor. So, so having brought the book into this project, and it's the first volume uh, in this series, and the series is called the Fritz Bauer Bibliotheque, or Fritz Bauer Library, and it's named in honor uh, of the German jurist who was responsible for pushing to have the first trial in Germany of uh, people who were involved in, in the uh, concentration camp administration. Uh, they were known as the Auschwitz trials of the early 1960s, and they would never have happened if it wasn't for this very brave German lawyer and jurist. And so uh, my collaborator, Ermtred Wojak, had written a biography of him and uh, saw this as a fitting honor uh, to his memory to have this kind of series. So um, we began in Austria uh, with the story of this young man. Tell us about Jura. Tell us about where he came from, how he ended up in Vienna, and then what happened to him. Well, you know, that, that's, uh, that's the tough part. I mean, short lives um, can, can, can burn very brightly and so impressively, but they're still short lives. That's true if you're Charlie Parker, uh, or that's true if you're Jura Seufer. Uh, and he was born in 1912 in Kharkiv. It's a Ukrainian city very near the border with Russia and, of course, now uh, in the news a lot because it's being attacked. Um, at that time, when he was little, you know, this would be in, in the mid-19-teens, uh, um, his family was forced to flee Ukraine because of an invasion of Russian Bolsheviks. So at that point, Russia was again pouring over the border into Ukraine, and putting a lot of pressure on the population. Uh, and Yura's father was a Russian-speaking Jewish-Ukrainian businessman. And he had, they were not a poor family. Um, they had a business. Uh, they were making it. But he was terrified that, that he was going to get everything taken away and also murdered um, by, by these, uh, the hordes that were pouring over the border. So the family then started to move around. Uh, they got out of Ukraine. They went to Georgia. They were in what was then called Constantinople for a while, and then finally ended up in Vienna. And by this time, uh, Jura, you know, he was getting not so quite so little. He was in his teens. And as, as he got into his late teens, uh, you know, fascism, you know, began to spread across Europe. And that's when he became an activist. And his activism sort of took the, a number of, of typical forms. Uh, there was street activism, but also there was uh, the form of the marriage of art and activism. And that's when he began writing poems and plays and working on music. And that continued uh, really nonstop uh, until um, things just got so bad uh, that Hitler's army actually started to march into Austria in March of 1938. And that was when he was captured, jailed. Uh, eventually taken to Dachau, uh, the concentration camp, where miraculously he continued to compose songs, uh, most notably the Dachau song, or a rendition of which is available for listening on the website of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um, at Dachau, he met up with some of his old artistic collaborators in Vienna. 
And one of them, the most prominent, was Herbert Zipper, and he was a composer. And they decided to choose a job of pulling a cement cart at the camp, which allowed them to remain outside, to talk rather freely, and also actually to work on songs. And these songs they would perform uh, for uh, the other inmates on Sundays when the guards were rather lax and they had some sort of a little more space. So you can see here, you know, this book sort of, I mean, to me, it's a book about the resilience. It's about resilience of different kinds, the resilience of art and its meanings to people uh, in times of stress and crisis and this catastrophe, but also the resilience of the artist uh, who is really committed um, to be to find ways to make uh, important work no matter where they are. In case you're just tuning in, my guest is Ben Miller. We're talking about Eura Seufer and the book Full of Hunger and Full of Bread by Dorothy James, which uh, he edited. And Eura, when he was in his late teens, he was already contributing to a newspaper in Vienna. And uh, he decided that he wanted to go to Berlin and see what was going on there. He wanted to file reports for the newspaper, even though he, he wasn't officially a reporter. And he went there as Hitler was uh, amassing power and getting ready to take over in Germany. And then when he went back to Vienna, he saw much the same thing happening there. The uh, governing Social Democrats were really just letting the fascists move in and take over, and he was completely disgusted by this. And this is one of the reasons he became such an activist. Right, exactly. And he wrote a novel, which has never been published, which is really kind of that story. Yes, exactly. Thus thus the party died. Uh, And it was a complex situation in Vienna in terms of the resistance because there were uh, there was the union resistance and the working party resistance and another branch of resistance, and they didn't work really well together, which created the opening for the fascists uh, to uh, manipulate and exploit. And the the whole idea of, um, you know, inability to unite under pressure obviously is a very relevant theme, uh, you know, to today, uh, you know, to, to push back against, you know, onerous forces that, that, that are committing crimes. So it was just a very complex scene, and his activism, you know, in these various branches of the resistance powered that novel. And, and there's some really – Dorothy James did a complete set of new translations of his work for this book. Uh, that means poems, songs, and also uh, portions of this novel, Thus the Party Died. And most tellingly, uh, in the book, there is this incredible scene where, you know, the, the union party, the working party, is really sort of, you know, being attacked and, and attacking back from the little place where they're staying, but sort of also being being pushed into a thing of trying to not attack too much. So they don't get attacked too much. So it was just a very um, painful episode of, of sort of what compromises do you make and when do you make them? And the scenes that are portrayed in the book in these translations show just what a, a, a dangerous dance that is, deciding um, leaders of, of organizations, deciding when do they tell uh, their people to fight and when do they tell them not to fight. And in the case in, 
in Vienna, uh, the union uh, workers were told to fight too late. And by the time they fought, uh, tried to really fight, there just was really no chance against uh, the opposition. It's the book nook. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, fact-based journalism in service of democracy. My guest today is Ben Miller, and uh, we'll uh, bring you more of our conversation right after this. And the book nook continues on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, today joined by Ben Miller. And we've been talking about a book by Dorothy James that he edited called Full of Hunger and Full of Bread, The World of Euro Seufer, 1912-1939. And I'm thinking maybe our listeners would like to hear some of his writing just to kind of get a sense of uh, what it was all about and what he was like. Um, I think I'd like to read uh, some passages from late in the book. Uh, and these will particularly highlight just how, how relevant the art and life of Euro Seufer is to today. In 1936, as Nazi aggression threatened Europe, highly insecure audiences, many of them fearing not only for their incomes, but for their lives, laughed and sweated with fear as Jura Seufer's play, The End of the World, attracted full houses in a basement theater in Vienna, Austria. Government censors would not have passed on any direct calls to action against the pro-German-Austrian administration. But Seufer's intention in this particular play is clearly to train the eyes of the audience through laughter and mockery on the terrible fact that the end of their world is perilously close. The play opens in the cosmos, where parodied figures speaking a heavily Viennese dialect represent the sun and the planets, they discuss how to solve the problems of the universe, where the planet Earth is causing a lot of trouble, where human beings have been making a mess of things for 10,000 years. The sun and the moon and the planets hatch a plan to send a young comet on a dir direct trajectory to, to the Earth in order simply to blot it out. The play swings into action, like all popular comedies, with a song sung by the leading character. In this case, a Professor Guck. He has discovered what is going on in the cosmos, and he sets out to travel the globe to warn humankind what is going to befall them in four short weeks. His opening song, the Telegraph Song, makes it clear that disaster is on the way. The crucial lyrics, freshly translated by Dorothy James, Go like this. Victims fall. Prices rise. Peace agreements RIP. Not a cloud in the skies. Bombs land. Knockout blows. Peace with foes. End game. Who can see? Soldiers for the fatherland. Gas. Gong. Short. Long. Over. Out. Stop. This world of a thousand nations, full of humans and machines, has been sentenced now to death. Sentence will be brought about when the month of May is out. Stop, stop, stop. No one listens to Professor Guck. Not in Paris, 
not in London, not in New York, not in Vienna. Guck has manufactured a machine that will stop the comet, and he is looking for financial support, but can't find it. Many of the business people are busy making money in the anti-comet preparations. One of the last scenes shows a group of immensely rich Americans preparing to escape the world in a spaceship, paying millions of dollars to be included in the voyage, only to find when the end is approaching, the ship's builder has defrauded them of their wealth and run away. The ship is a complete phony. But Viennese popular theater does not go in for sad ends, nor does Eura Seufer. He steps in and saves the world of Professor Guck with a classic popular theater magical solution. The comet pulls back of its own accord. The comet explains to the sun that he has fallen in love with the earth, and his song, a love song, if you will, ends the play. The lyrics, again freshly translated by Dorothy James, go like this. For close, much closer than you've ever known, that's how I saw the earth. I saw its fields golden with grain, grazed by the shade of the bomber plane, filled with the noise of the engine's drone. I saw it flashing with radio beams, transmitting lies and hate on the air. I saw it poor and filthy with reams of richness beyond compare. Full of hunger and full of bread, this earth is. Full of life and full of death, this earth is. Boundless in poverty and in wealth. Blessed and damned, this earth is. Blazing with beauty, this earth is. And its future is glorious and great. Ben Miller, reading from Full of Hunger and Full of Bread, The World of Eura Seufer, 1912-1939, by Dorothy James. He was an editor on this uh, project. and um, That was good, Ben. Thank you. Thanks so much, Vic. Ben, uh, the first time I had you on the show was for Riverbend Chronicle, the junkification of a boyhood idol amid the curious glory of urban Iowa. This was your memoir, and uh, recently you, you published a piece in the Raritan Review called The Writer's Studio, which uh, strikes me as a continuation of your memoir. Can you talk about any of that? Oh, sure. I'd be glad to. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, things happen in every people, everyone's life, um, that are those eternal echoes throughout the, out the duration of the life. And, you know, meeting this writing group when I was age 15, um, was just such a formative time. It seems like my life began, uh, all over again. And, and in the first memoir, I touch on this group, there's sort of a framing conceit for the book, but I really really thought that the group deserved its own uh, book. And um, so I've been working hard on that around other things. And I really hope to bring the full story of that writing group um, to light. I mean, I think, for example, in the many ways it's affected me, I mean, I never would have edited a book like uh, Full of Hunger and Full of Bread um, had I not my own in my own life seen the role of art to positively transform reality. Um, seen art as, as a tool not only of survival um, and resistance, but also as a tool of transformation 
and actually even revolution. Um, you know, I think it's interesting when I read the, the Eura Soifer excerpt there, um, you know, he used humor and mockery to try to put up a wall against the, the evil uh, of the German aggression. And I think that Bell Hooks, uh, the wonderful essayist, we recently lost her, but she's a, a real big, um, wonderful uh, writer who, who continues to be very important to me. And I think she said that, that, you know, you can't have a meaningful revolution without humor. And one of the interesting things is when I started going to, as sort of a kid off the street, to a writing group at age 15, I really found out how funny writing was. I mean, you know, how funny not only as a pursuit, you know, this sort of thing, you're going to try to do something that is very, very hard to do and fail even more than, than baseball players fail at bat, um, but also just funny in the sense that, that it brought you uh, you know, into a sense of the world that got you out of a defensive crouch and that opens you up to its contradictions and its conflicts and all of the things that really you have to learn to accept and live with if you're going to become a full human being. So this book that, that I've been working on carefully for years um, because the subject matter is so important to me is creeping to a conclusion, and, and I think it's a really good second um, volume of that series that that I have been thinking about that addresses um, the curious glory of, of the urban Midwestern spaces that I think is really lost, uh, you know, in terms of our American story. I think we hear a lot about small towns and we hear a lot about big cities, and but I think those nebulous urban urban spaces of 90,000, 100,000, 150, 200,000, they're this untold story. And anyone who's lived in them for, for any amount of time is touched by them and actually uh, you know, uh, has an experience that is unique. Ben, that uh, writer's group was clearly an oasis for you, and uh, you, you had great need for sanctuaries of that kind. Um, you also had a neighbor who gave you some sanctuary. Uh, and uh, as I read this uh, thing in the Rotan Review, I, I remembered just how tough it was for you at home and how, how much you needed these places, these safe places. Right, and, and needed art, actually. And this is where, I mean, it's so interesting about art. It is something you give to yourself. And it is something you have the power to give to yourself. You can't decide, I'm going to make a good living and make a good living. I mean, someone has to give it to you, basically. But art, as well as love, um, and and the, just the human kinship you can give to yourself, and I think that that again, as as, as difficult as things were, um, you know, finding your way to those people. Uh, for example, you mentioned Mr. Hickey, who's a centerpiece of the first memoir, uh, a, a homebound man who was so scared of the outside world that he came to the door carrying a gun, but nonetheless would open that door for anyone. Um, it just seems <laughs> impossible to believe, but that's the way I could see that, that man in his V-neck sweater and his bow tie, bald head. He's got this Derringer in his one hand, and he's opening the door and inviting me in for a 7-Up. <laughs> and he would do that for anybody in the neighborhood. And so he has his fear of the outside world, but he also has in his heart a way to overcome that. And then he would lay the gun on the table between us, and he'd give me a 7-Up, and he'd fix a Sanka, and we would talk. And I think that 
that that he i mean it's it's sort of again comes back to that whole thing of resilience that the Euro Seufer book has in it and the first memoir does in this second book um although i i always see hear the word memoir and i think my gosh you've got to be a statesman to write a memoir i mean i sort of i sort of still think of these books as nonfiction, you know, in some way, or history, some kind of personal mm-hmm. history. But, um, but anyway, I so I think of Mr. Hickey with his, his resilience to not to give in to those fears and to actually let anybody in um, while holding the hand with the, the handle of that gun on the other side. You know, I just think of, of, of how many people, how many secret stories of resilience there are. I mean, when you go to a convenience mart and there's someone behind the counter there adding up your total, you don't know what they've been through the night before or the week before or 20 years before. And and there's many stories of resilience that are just secretly hidden around us. And I think that um, if I had a mission in life, it's to be sensitive to those stories and to uh, respect them and to find a way uh, to tell more of those stories, because again, they they just get lost in the glitz and the blitz of everything else. Ben, you mentioned earlier that you have always worked. Uh, besides your writing, you've always worked, and, and uh, you know you keep the food on the table that way. And you said you didn't do teaching; you were doing other things. I think our uh, listeners would be curious to know what you've been doing because it's a fairly fascinating job. Oh yeah, yeah. That's so, it's so funny. I mean, I think um, you know, even though I've been writing uh, my whole life and, and, and spent a life studying that in, in in different environments, I mean, I think I always sort of school wasn't a happy experience for me, public school, and and I think that there was a sense of marginalization, you know, around school, like oh well, the, certain things are let in, certain certain things are let out, so. No, when it came time, you know, as I was an adult, teaching really wasn't, I didn't feel like an authority about anything. I feel sort of, I, I do feel that, that I know things and I know what I know and I want to find out more. But, you know, somehow standing up and saying this is writing and this isn't writing, I just didn't feel like I could be an authority about that. Um, but I, and, I, and as well, I'd seen people who had taught and, and the lives got a lot smaller. So early on, my wife and I, who's a poet, the Ann Pearson, Pearson Weiss is her name. She's an accomplished poet. And uh, we decided, you know, and she sort of had the same feeling. We were two birds of a feather. And so we just had been working day jobs and uh, been at Santa Claus at Macy's uh, and uh, among other things. I worked at the New York Stock Exchange when I was in a big mismatch when I was in graduate school. But for the last five years, I've been in the hospital environment. And uh, this sort of happened because we were in South Dakota and there weren't really a lot of jobs that, that matched up with a, a resume like I had. Um, and, but in the healthcare industry, um, accuracy is very important in terms of data in obviously. And, you know, I had always sort of in these different jobs entered data, you know, and that had, or proofread things. So I got into the work of being a support to nurses in units. And the first unit I worked for was an ICU unit, but a telehealth ICU, ICU unit, which means that I was, it was a very small windowless hub. And, and to my right was a nurse and to my left was a nurse. And I was answered the phone with the traffic controller. And there were two doctors uh, offsite, uh, usually in, in Detroit. Um, they were doctors associated with the Henry Ford Hospital there, uh, and, which has a big ICU unit and great doctors. So, um, I sort of would work tapping everyone together and 
you know, making sure that when we got a call in from one of our 36 sites that we supported with cameras, tiny hospitals, like from Wyoming to West Virginia, a nurse would call in, oh, we need some help. We have a tough patient. Then I would sort of make sure that ask them if they wanted the doctor or nurse and get them the doctor and nurse. And, and then they would get some kind of support that you can provide electronically to try to stabilize a patient so they could be sent to a bigger hospital. I did that uh, through the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it was really quite a horrifying thing to watch the pandemic slowly creeping west and then starting to take hold of these hospitals in Missouri, particularly um, when suddenly they were just besieged with patients and our calls were going, um, our call volume was going up and census was going up expeditiously. So anyway, I saw that I needed to take a rest um, after that. It, it was to, to just gather myself together. And then I reentered the hospital uh, in two other positions since then, um, entering data, vetting data and things like that. And all of this, I kept a record of what uh, I had been experiencing seeing uh, in this place in South Dakota that actually is really where it meets, the state meets Iowa and Minnesota. So it's a very interesting uh, area of about a quarter of a million people. And uh, so not, not the South Dakota some people might think of, so very concrete and everything. And I sort of started make, taking, uh, as I was working the job, sort of making notes about the shifts that I was working and things I was seeing on the way to the shifts and stories I was getting uh, exposed to. And uh, next year, um, Rutgers University Press will be bringing out a collection of these pandemic logs that, that sort of give the, the sort of the view of the pandemic from from a hospital support person, not a doctor, not a nurse, but someone who's just sort of caught in the middle, who's having a job to support another life, but suddenly they find themselves, uh, you know, in the middle of this huge story that really overwhelms everything else and really takes all of your attention away from everything else. Ben, I want to hear more about these pandemic journals, uh, but we need to take a break. My guest is Ben Miller. And uh, he joins us in the book nook today, and uh, we'll have one more segment with Ben right after this. You're listening to the book nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, joined on the program today by Ben Miller, and we've been talking about a variety of uh, subjects here: uh, his work and uh, his editing, etc. And he's on the telephone in Brooklyn. And uh, before the break, uh, you were talking about these pandemic journals that are going to be published next year. Uh, tell us more about this. Yeah, well, you know, it was interesting. I, I first started them, um, you know, sort of to sort of make it through myself. It was a personal thing. I saw this historic event happening, and I thought I need to process all of this stuff in real time because I, you know, I was working 12-hour shifts, and you need to keep acute and alert. So I thought one of the ways I do that in my life has been taking notes you know, and thinking about things. So I thought you'll just start taking notes, you know, and trying to keep up with the information you're learning about the pandemic and everything and, and how you're seeing the unit change and everything. So I started sort of taking some notes and, um, you know, and, and just I would type them up as soon as I got home. I would work a 12-hour shift, and then I would come home with notes and then, you know, just type them up, sit still in my scrubs, even though it was telehealth. For the, for the appearance's sake, I had to wear scrubs, and um, which actually feel good. They're really nice, light clothing. But I would sit down and type up these notes for the first log, 
and then I would have, then I would be ready for my shift the next day. It was exhausting, but it really helped me keep ahead of things and, and keep up, keep alert enough to complete these shifts. What time did you get off work typically? Well, you, you work from seven to seven. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, once one of the really interesting things about when the log started going after a couple, because I wasn't seeing telehealth written about anywhere, you know, nowhere. And so, uh, and about telehealth ICUs in particular. So I contacted ProPublica and, I, you know, cold, and I said, are you interested in an account uh, of this or, or just seeing it? Because I want somebody to know what's happening and, uh, and how things are, are going on. So I contacted them, and I actually, for the first month and a half, you know, our editor there was very supportive, even though it was probably not going to work out for them for a project because uh, the writing is not really investigative reporting. It's a personal uh, it's personal impressions, and, and it's uh, written not from anyone who's been trained in journalism, but just a regular person who's in the situation. But anyway, they were very, very supportive, and they, they thought it was an important story to be told, and that really was encouraging. And, um, you know, the first log ended in April. That's as long as I could last in that really stressful environment. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, uh, then I got a little break, and then I went back into the hospital situation as soon as I could. How did you pitch it to Rutgers University Press? Do you have an agent, or did you do it yourself? How did you do it? Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. I, I really have never had an agent. Uh-huh. Um, you, you know, and I think that um, it's really important for writers out there to know that. It is possible to have books without agents. I mean, I think part of that is just I'm very independent, and I really, really like to mold my own projects myself and then try to to, to market them as best as I can. Um uh, the, the personal aspect of it is a very important thing. Um, it's not trying to fit a market niche with these kinds of things. It's trying to tell a truth that isn't really being told or told fully, whether it's about the urban Midwest, the medical environment, um, or, or the stories of the extraordinary things ordinary people do every day to get by. You know, and so that doesn't tend to be the sexiest thing So um, commercially, but it's what makes me write and makes me want to write as long as I'm around. So anyway... So I, I had just actually published uh, the first log in the Raritan Journal, which is related to Rutgers. And out mm. of the blue, I got a call um, about a new imprint they're starting at Rutgers offering to publish the book uh, wow. next year. And they thought it was very important that somebody understand um, what it was like where I was at. Because certainly people have seen stories about South Dakota and, and, and Iowa and Minnesota in the pandemic, but not this kind of story. Uh, and not someone who's been on the ground there for years, uh, writing and drawing on that experience and those contacts and those connections. Uh, and they thought it was really important to have a story written by someone who didn't just drop in and try to learn all the things in sort of short script, but sort of have a, have a, a story told that was really based and rooted right where it was being told. Apparently, being in the Raritan Review has been a good thing for you. Oh, oh goodness gracious. I mean, there's a couple. I mean, and I, I must mention here um, my reverence for Robert Fogarty. Uh, and he was a really big, big, big supporter of mine um, throughout the years. And I know he recently passed. And I know you're in sort of the area that was his sort of, he was all over the world, but, you know, headquartered. And, and I miss him every single day because there aren't very many editors like 
Robert Fogarty or Jackson Lears of Raritan or Carolyn Kubler of the New England Review. Uh, you know, they just, you know, you know, you can get that you can count on them for absolute frankness. And they, they like absolute frankness in return. And art is what matters. And art means getting the truth right. And it's as simple as that, but it's the hardest thing in the world. And especially with prose, uh, you just need to, to go over things so often to make sure that you haven't been lax, you know, and, and to question your, your own suppositions. And, you know, good editors will do that, and they're so rare. And um, there's a really good set of editors. Karen Lear is also is an editor at Rare 10 and Stephanie Vollmer. And together, it's a great team. And I had no idea that, that anything like that could amount to a book. Um, I was bullheaded and going to do it anyway, but I was so happy that, that now these messages will have a chance to be disseminated and, and get out there in the world and give some appreciation um, to the people who are doing a lot of the little jobs that the big jobs can't be done without. Bob Fogarty was the longtime editor of the Antioch Review, and he's the guy who said, Vic, you're from Iowa. I have a writer from Iowa. You've got to read his book, River Bend Chronicle. You've got to read Ben Miller. If it wasn't for Bob Fogarty, I never would have heard of you. Oh, yeah, that's, I didn't really know that. And that's, he was, he did not, he did not brag on himself very much. Um, he was a humble man. And I mean, the fact that he would say that, I mean, that, that for a writer like me, that means everything. Um, you wish to reach as many readers as possible, but I can tell you that one reader is important. You know, um, one reader is important. Mm. So, and I think it's really important. That's another thing, important thing for writers to understand. Uh, the marketing element has a place, but reaching one reader can be really important. And certainly I reached Bob and Bob reached out to you and we found out we had Iowa roots in common and Bishop's cafeteria in common <laughs> and a whole bunch of rich subjects that, mm. I mean, I really wanted, I have many pieces about Bishop's cafeteria, um, which Vic, in Iowa that, that, that Vic also has a history with. And someday I hope <laughs> he'll be able to read those. That reminds me, uh, Bill Bryson, who, He's originally from Des Moines, but you'd never know it since he has an English accent. Um, he wrote a memoir about growing up in Des Moines, and it was called something about the Thunderbolt Kid. I can't remember the full title. Have you, have you read that one? Uh, you know, I think you would mention to me. I think I did pick it up. I'm not sure if I got all the way through Okay. It. Well, he apparently was in kind of a hurry when he wrote it, and, and I read it very carefully because— we grew up on the same side of town, went to the same high school, uh, went hung out the same places like Bishop's Cafeteria. And in the book, he talks about being at Bishop's and having the waitress come over to refill his, his Coca-Cola for him. And, and during the interview, I said, well, Bill, I said, they, it was a cafeteria. They didn't have waitresses. And, and he got he got really snippy with me. He says, "Well, he says, maybe, maybe you should have written it. Maybe it should be your memoir." <laughs> oh goodness! Well, listen. You know, one thing you got to do if you try to cull from your memories and create. And I really like place-based writing. Is one of the way you might describe what I do. Place-based, whether it's New York or South Dakota or Iowa. If you're going to do that, you need to be very humble because, um, and you know, you can't remember everything. Uh -huh. And it's really easy to make a mistake, and it's not bad that you make a mistake, but it's important you understand why. 
you made the mistake. You know what I mean? It's like, why did you add that fact? Uh-huh. Emotionally, you can feel an emotion. Maybe you know you could be at a place where there's no waitresses, but you could somehow feel like you're very well taken care of there. Oh, a waitress could appear in your memory. Stop making excuses for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is Ben Miller. Ben, uh, <laughs> you mentioned that you're working on this second volume of of your memoir. Uh, the first was Riverbend Chronicle. And, and it sounds like you're pretty far along. You've been working on that for probably 10 years, too, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I hate to hear, hear that phrase, but yes. And I mean, I think the, the length of time has to do with I love the subject matter so much that I need to keep getting the distance from it to, to perfect the pieces. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the things that are dearest to you are, can be the hardest to write. But a, a big chunk of that book, or not a big chunk, but a big, a big chapter in that book appeared in the England Review. Uh, a couple of years ago, under the title of WC, W period C, and um, also in New England Review, another chapter had appeared before that, and um, I really had just again a little bit to go, and and I think I will, I will try to send that book out in the world, and again telling the story of this incredible writing group of retirees that met every Thursday night around seven o'clock, and who led into their midst. Uh, a 15-year-old, decades younger, and we're only nurturing and supportive. And I think I, this is a scene in the Riverbend Chronicle. Uh, when I got into college uh, in this odd way by sending poems to a professor who then uh, – I had a very bad grade point average of 1.8 in high school. I just – home life made studying hard. But I, 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 I was high on my horse on writing, so I sent poems to a professor at Cornell College, got in, and this writing group found out about it. And they were just over the moon, and they had been so worried that gosh knows what, I can't imagine what was going through their minds, what would happen to me. But anyway, they all got together, and they made me like a care basket to take to college, a wicker basket full of toothpaste and toothbrushes and pen and pad and, and you know, some sort of archaic things that they that they that a kid might have needed in 1950, but maybe didn't need in 1982. <laughs> but it, it was so sweet, and and that again, when you have when you find it doesn't matter where you find people like that. They might be in your family, they might be outside your family, but it's so important, especially for young people, uh, to have people that care about them unconditionally, uh, that can listen to them that can accept their imagination and and it's just what they did and and so I went off to to college with their wicker basket of toiletries and then managed to get through. I love it. You probably had a tube of brill cream in there. Yeah, Bill, yeah, that was what I was gonna say. I wasn't gonna yeah. get too detailed. Yeah. Okay. And, but it was stuff I didn't even know what to do with it. Uh-huh. Part of it I thought some of it was like body cream, but it was like brill cream. I was putting it on the wrong places on my body. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't good. But anyway, I kept it for good luck. The, the entire course of my four years at Cornell College, where I got a wonderful education uh, in Mount Vernon, Iowa, not the Cornell on the East Coast. Uh-huh. And that sort of set me up to go directly to NYU uh, to graduate school. Uh, cold. I didn't know anyone in New York, but I needed to get farther away from Iowa to actually be able to tell my Iowa stories, frankly. Did you have a professor at Cornell named Byrne or Bernstein? Oh well, his well, well, the, the professor I worked more it was Robert Dana. Okay, sure, he's was, famous. He's a yeah, poet. Yeah. Well, to me, yeah, right. To me, he was. He was uh, 
poet laureate of Iowa, uh-huh. and he had been at the Iowa Writing Workshop when John Berryman and Robert Lowell were there. And so he had had, you know, he had really been exposed to the novas in the poetry world of the ni- novas of the 1950s. And he really brought that kind of intensity to class. And he was publishing them in New Yorker from Mount Vernon, Iowa, which was very uh, not, not, not common uh-huh. you know, in the 80s. And, you know, so he just showed me, like, the, the importance of accepting rejection and, and trying again, and, but also the importance of aiming high, mm. you know, with your vision. You know, not, not, not sort of dumbing it down and thinking, oh, I can just do things, you know, in the, you know, nearby, you know, but sort of thinking like, oh, I can attach, you know, a field in Iowa to an editor in New York and, you know, you know whatever. And I think that that kind of transcendent thinking sort of as we become prey to regionalism and division, um, you know, sort of fades away. But the truth is, is that the Midwest was very connected to New York by the railways in the 20s and 30s. And there were all sorts of Pulitzer Prize winners living in little towns in Wisconsin and Iowa. I mean, there's McKinley Cantor in Iowa, and there was Zona Gale in, in, in Wisconsin. And and they took the train to Greenwich Village you know, mm-hmm. every couple months. And then they came back to the little town and and, and they saw it all as of, of a piece and all of an American piece. And, and I'm so beguiled by that thinking. And you certainly can't force it. And we have to deal with the situation we have. But uh, I, I mourn the fact that, 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 you know, these regions all can speak truths to each other and they need to. And, you know, being sort of an adapted New Yorker that's back in South Dakota, I have to explain all the time that I feel more comfortable and safer in New York than I do in South Dakota because I don't have to have a car in New York. I can take the subway. And despite recent events, I mean, the subway is, is wonderful. I was on the subway yesterday. It, it's a efficient way to get around. And in, in South Dakota, the cars are huge and fearsome and they drive too fast. And working in the ICU, I saw the results of that. And mm. it was very scary. So there's all sorts of contradictions of you know, region that we need to look at and respect and, and dialogue about. We've been listening to the book nook. My guest has been Ben Miller, and uh, I'm looking at the clock. We're running out of time. Uh, do you want to circle back to Full of Hunger and Full of Bread for a moment? Uh, is there something oh, you wanted to share or talk you. about there? Yeah, thank you, Vic. That, that's very generous of you. And I want to thank you for, again, for your service to writers and the support you've given them and, and, and me, and me especially over the years. It's, every moment of it is valuable. Yes, I'd like to you know, go back to the world, the full of hunger and full of bread, the world of Your Soifer, 1912-1939, which is available on Amazon and at discerning bookstores. And what I'd like to read and I'd like to leave readers with is an excerpt of a Eura Sawyer poem called Storm Song. And again, the translation is a fresh one by Dorothy James. The storm of time is raging past, and you are tired. Find no rest. You long to close your eyes now. But do not. Do not close your eyes. Just look the storm full in the face. You have to know it all now. That was Ben Miller yep. reading from Full of Hunger and Full of Bread, The World of Eura Soifer, 1912-1939. Uh, Dorothy James wrote it, and Ben was editor on that. And we've been talking about Ben's work and Ben's career and Ben's uh, day jobs and all kinds of other stuff. And, and Ben, uh, it's been too long. I want to have you back on the show when uh, Rutgers puts out your book next year. 
Oh, that that'd be an immense pleasure. We'll get there. So let's plan on it, okay? Yeah, sounds like a date. Are you planning on staying in South Dakota then for a while? Yes, I think we'll be there for a while. Um, I think I'm gonna, we're going to be coming back family and friends for family and friends reason. Now the travel is a little easier. Um, we're going to be coming back to New York City. But yeah, we're going to keep sewing the regions together. That's sort of what Ann and I are about. And you are in uh, what is known as Siouxland. Yes. Siouxland. Are you familiar with that term, Siouxland? Yeah, oh yeah, Siouxland, oh yeah, Siouxland, and then Frederick Manford, the great writer. Excellent. um, You you got it. Yeah, he had a whole series of buckskin tales about the Siouxland and Dune Island and everything. He's he's an amazing artist himself. Lord Grizzly. Lord Grizzly. (laughs) What a book. We had his daughter Freya Manford on the show recently. Oh, and she is so nice. Because they had reissued uh, uh, one of his books. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, and he's some, and he's another person who sewed together the regions. He came to New York all the time. There you go. Well, Ben, thank you. Thank you again. Yes, it, w- it was a great pleasure, Vic. My guess Anytime. Is, my guess has been Ben Miller, and uh, you've been listening to the Book Nook. For the Book Nook, I'm Vic McEwenis. <laughs>